0: So firstly I'd like to thank you very much for for being here this evening. It's always encouraging to to meet parents who take their responsibilities uh, as parents very much to heart as I can see already just meeting you and certainly also talking with Father Themen I can see very much that you do that. So you're to me be, be commended for for that and know that God God sees that and he certainly will bless your efforts. Education has been called the art of arts. It's an art. It requires a certain aptitude, Becomes more easily to some than to others. But if God gives children, he's also going to give the grace of state to take care of them, to be a good parent. It's important when we say an art, although we don't think that it's sort of, well, whatever whatever works for you then. No, like any real art, education is an art that's, that's governed by certain definite principles. And we need to try to learn those principles. I think we probably know them pretty much in theory. It's more about speaking about them, talking about them, applying them, and talking about applying them is what, what we're here for in these these next hours today and tomorrow it's important because we can say that many an art today has been lost and this is one of them it's an art that's to a great extent been lost the parental roles have been blurred by our society the male female roles what's a man what's a woman Do, does our society even know anymore what they are uh, the goal what are we about what are we trying to achieve in raising our children and educating our children that's been blurred as well and many many uh, a parent in today's world didn't have the best of examples from from their parents and yet here they are and they have to raise children that are precious and what they do with those children will have, an incredible amount to, to to do with where that child ends up not only in his life on this earth but for eternity so we wanna to, to do the best we can other than just now when I when I type you see me at a keyboard ever you're gonna see me using two fingers on each page on each uh, hand right, well I never learned to type properly I just sort of made do well a lot of times our parenting is that way too we still get the job done um, and we can learn to do even better so this evening's conference is about what I would call the essential element in raising a child and that element is love we have to be careful when we say that word because we have a sort of misunderstanding often of what it means but we'll get back to that we're made for love so we need love and love is going to be the key. whether a child turns out to be what he was meant to be ultimately he's meant to be united to God who is love for all eternity so he's meant to be someone who operates by charity love of God and love of souls forgetfulness of self that's what he's meant to become someday in whatever area of life he, he ends up going into whether he's an engineer or a doctor or a bricklayer, or whatever he might be, he's one day going to be judged on how much love is in his soul, how much love is in his heart. And so it makes sense, if you think about it, that if we're made for love, and love is what we're meant to do, then we're going to need love to be raised properly. The sad reality is that because God is very much absent from our world, God who is love, love is very much absent as well. Not only the love of God, but even the love, human love, very much absent. I'll give you a few quotes from kids, some of whom I've worked with over the years, some of whom others have worked with. Um, As I give conferences, I often tell stories about this or that one that I knew at one time. Um, I've been around a little while at this point. And I've been in a lot of places. I, I try when I tell a story to not really reveal enough about the situation so anybody would know who it was, even if they knew the situation at the time it happened. The intent is that. But certainly I've been in enough places and you see the same things again and again. So um, here are just a few quotes from kids. My mother doesn't understand me. She doesn't listen when I talk. She doesn't take it seriously. She doesn't have the time to be interested in what I say. The things that are important for me are childish to her, so I don't say anything. It's easier that way. Here's another one, 15-year-old girl. My mother told me before I left for camp that I wasn't coming home again. She's going to find some place for me to go, no matter what. She hates me. Here's another one. I always adored my mother, although it did seem to me that sometimes she didn't really respond to, to the affection I showed her. And then one day, I think I was 12, I overheard her telling her friend that she loved my brother much more than me. It was horrible, and I almost hated my brother. Those were all girls. Here's a boy. Sometimes in my room at night when in the darkness everything seems big When the smallest pain hurts more than anything. I have to bite my pillow to keep from sobbing out loud Here's another one. What do you do when your own mother hates you? It's like everything I do. There's something wrong. I can't do anything right Do you know how hard I've tried to be the perfect girl and she doesn't even want me around? These are kids who at least believed, and knowing some of the circumstances, it was true, at least believed that they were not loved. And because they believed it, they were scarred. A soul that is deprived of love is a very sickly being. It's going to be sickly and scarred. I've often said I would like to do an experiment. I would like to take two healthy plants identical plants almost. Same nurture, same soil, same maturity, same health, two healthy plants in two different pots. And put one of them in front of a large window like that one, and put the other one in a closet. And every day go and dig up the soil a little bit, and pour some water in, and maybe put a little fertilizer, whatever needs to be done to keep a plant healthy and then compare the difference between the plant in the closet and the plant in the window. The plant in the window has received sunlight, which is essential to its health. I'm not a gardener, but if I'm not mistaken, the plant that's in the sunlight would do just fine. And then the one in the closet, within a matter of days, I'm sure, would turn yellow, begin to shrivel, and very soon would die. Because it has no nurture, because it doesn't have any sun to give it what it needs to stay healthy and strong. Yeah. Love for a child is like sunlight for a plant. Everything else can be there. Discipline, decent school, the faith, the sacraments. But if love is not there, if there's no sunlight, the soul will be sickly and scarred and will die. It will die firstly because a child that is not loved is a child beyond the reach of the adults who are to care for him. When there's no love, there's no confidence. When a child senses that he's not loved, he's not going to trust the one who's taking care of him. And when there's no confidence, when the child has no confidence in those who are taking care of him, no true education can be done. St. John Bosco says, The educator, having once succeeded in gaining the heart of his subject, can afterwards exercise a great influence over him, can caution him, advise him, correct him when necessary. After having succeeded in gaining the heart of his subject, then he can do those things. Caution, advise, correct, guide, so on. But only after. That love and confidence that a child receives from his parents, essentially, but also from his priest and from his teachers and so on, that's what keeps his heart open to receive what the educator is trying to give him. And that's what wins from the child a certain willingness to collaborate, to work with the adult. He wants to please the adult. He wants to imitate the adult. He's willing to work for the adult. He's willing to strive for what the adult is setting up as an ideal because he trusts that that's a true ideal. That collaboration of a child is essential to true education. Because we can't simply say, you will do this, 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 this. There's direction, there's pressure, right? You are are going in this direction. Eventually we have to let go of the child. Unless he's bought into that direction, unless he's accepted the ideal that the educator parent in this case, has placed before him as a true ideal, as soon as there's no longer the obligation to move towards that, he's gone. I had a girl once in my school, and she was about 16, and I knew that she was really struggling, and I knew the situation in the home was a very unhappy home. And a young person in the parish came up to me one time, and they were just we were in the basement. And he pointed to her and he said, that one there is like a horse waiting to bolt. She's just waiting for the gate to be open. And I said to him, I know. And that's exactly what she did. As soon as that gate was open, gone. Everything that was over here, There'd never been a collaboration. We can't force an ideal. We can't force virtue. We can't force love. We have to win them. Somehow we have to light a fire inside that decides it wants them. Love is the first step. Somehow we've got to get inside that heart And St. Gregory said the heart is like a fortress. It can only be opened from inside. So we can't force our way into the heart of a child. We have to win entry. That's why love is indispensable. Another reason love is indispensable is because without it, the child becomes incapable of love. Incapable of loving. When what, what is love? Love, we'll see other definitions in a bit, but St. Teresa, the child, Jesus says, love is to give oneself. Well, you have to believe that you have something to give before you can give yourself. Right? When a child has not been loved he logically concludes, or maybe not logically, but either way, it's the same consequence. He concludes that he's not lovable. And if he's not lovable, it's because he has nothing that is worth loving, which means he has nothing which is worth giving. This is true, this inability to love that results from not being loved. It's true on a natural level, It's true on a supernatural level. That young girl that I was telling you about will, with great difficulty, be faithful in a marriage. Because she doubts that she has anything to offer. On a supernatural level, it's going to be the same thing. We hear a lot of talk in today's world about believing in self and teaching the child self-esteem, right? And it's all totally falsified, right? Because when they say believing in oneself and having self-esteem, they mean believing self to be great, You'll tell a child that he's wonderful, that he's just tremendous, a tremendous artist when he can't draw, tremendous writer when he can't write, right? You're just wonderful. You're the best. Right? And then he goes out and he finds out that he's not. Right? If we look at the big picture, it's also true. None of us is great. All of us is precious. We're not great. We're little. We're little souls in the hand of a loving God. Right? True belief in self, true self-esteem is not knowing self to be great, or believing self to be great. It's knowing self to be loved. That's true self-esteem. And it's necessary, it's essential, if one is going to accomplish anything in life that is not selfish. When love is lacking, The soul is vulnerable to all kinds of sickness. Just as a a malnourished body is vulnerable to all kinds of sicknesses of body. The soul that is not loved or doesn't believe it's loved because we are all loved by God. Even if there wasn't someone there touching us, that convinced us of that. But when there's when we believe that love is lacking, or we've shut ourselves off from that love, which many a soul does, the soul becomes prone to jealousy. Because what is jealousy? I want to be loved. I'm competing to be loved. Someone else being loved pulls something away from me. Human respect. I want to be loved. What do I have to be or pretend to be to be loved? Immorality? fill the void. A soul, as those quotes showed you, those are true quotes. Some of those are made up. A soul that is not loved is a soul that's dying inside. And so you have to fill that hole, that aching. Maybe with immorality, maybe with drugs, maybe with abuse of alcohol. But the soul is very vulnerable. Can get drawn into just about anything. Some souls that are not loved or feel they're not loved, they rather than they've got more. They've got more character, more backbone, more fire. And so their response to it is to that not love is anger, rage, cynicism, rebellion. There's there's a hatred that develops in that soul of a good which is not seen as real. It's seen as hypocritical. That's cynicism there. And that's where we come up with today's rock culture to a very large extent. At a given point, I found out that some of my kids were listening to a particular rock band, and it came up in conversation. Uh, I don't think they were talking to me, but I happened to be about as far away as I am to Mr. McCormick. One of them said something about Green Day being in town, and he would give anything to hear Green Day. And I said, what's Green Day? Oh, you wouldn't like it. No, tell me what is it? It's it's a it's a really cool rock group. It's like oh, end of conversation. Got on the internet. Green Day. Let me read you some of the lyrics. This song is called "City of the Damned." Been lined, anger and rage because not loved. City of the Dead at the end of another lost highway signs misleading to nowhere city of the damned lost children with dirty faces today no one really seems to care I read the graffiti in the bathroom stall like the holy scriptures in a shopping mall and so it seemed to confess it didn't say much but it only confirmed that the center of the earth is the end of the world and I could really care less. And then the refrain starts, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care if you don't care, I don't care. Here's another one, it's the same album. I walk a lonely road, the only one I that have ever known. Don't know where it goes, but it's home. And I walk alone. I walk this empty street on the boulevard of broken dreams where the city sleeps. And I'm the only one. And I walk alone. My shadow's the only one that walks beside me. My shallow heart's the only thing that's beating. Sometimes I wish someone out there will find. Till then. I'll walk alone. And then the refrain, I walk alone, I walk alone, I walk alone, I walk alone. One more. Nobody likes you. Everyone left you. They're all out without you, having fun. Everyone left you. Nobody likes you. They're all out without you, having fun. That's a song. A song that resonates in the hearts of kids. Sometimes our kids. And that's scary. Without love, a child becomes incapable of love. Why ultimately? Because the, the, the ultimate source of all love is God. And the child, because he hasn't experienced love in a tangible way, he has a distorted notion of God. A God who doesn't love. A God who's cruel. A God who's indifferent. All right. Here's a quote from Father Boylan, his book, This Tremendous Lover. It's a very good book. Most of us form our notion of God from our experiences with those we meet frequently, especially from the treatment we receive from our parents and teachers. If they are harsh and excessively just and strict, we find it difficult to be convinced that God is a loving Father and a merciful Savior. He is thought of as a hard master, over-exacting and meticulous, setting traps for His creatures, and almost only too anxious to catch them in wrongdoing. No true love of God is possible with such a concept in one's mind. Yet such ideas can exist, and we must take great care that we are not responsible for their formation. you go to the Baltimore Catechism, the first question is, why do we exist? Why did God make us? And the answer is to know him, love him, and serve him. There's an order. The first is to know. If we know that God is good, and that we go, know that God is, is, is everything that God is, beautiful and noble and self-sacrificing, and ultimately loving, beyond anything we could possibly conceive from this earth, then we can love Him. Because we know we can love. And because we love, we're willing to serve. It starts with a proper notion of God. Our vocation, in fact, when we say serving God, our vocation is in fact to mirror this Sacred Heart of God to be as he was, to be as he is. With his patience and his understanding and his compassion and his willingness to sacrifice, his willingness to pay the price for the good of another, that's our vocation. That's the Christian vocation. Impossible unless we have a sense for what God is about. And that sense comes from before anything else our parents because from the time that we're little and the first impressions are being received on our soul it's mom and dad who are there it's a very daunting thing to think of yourself as the mirror that reflects into your child's soul the reality of God or excuse it but still sends a message into the soul. Raising a child to fulfill that vocation of nearing the love of God is then going to be essentially a work of love. But what is love? You have a very vague incorrect notion of love in our world today (coughs) love is in fact simple it is to want what is good for the one that's loved to seek what is good for the one that's loved no matter what the cost When you think of loving your child, it means to want what will make him a better child, stronger soul, stronger in soul, stronger in heart, more perfect, more happy, because more on the path to God, more like God. It's a profound affection that we're talking about, that looks beyond the superficial exteriors and the worldly motivation. It's something that requires great courage at times, tenacity, and always unselfishness. Because we want to love the souls that are entrusted to us, because we intend to love them, we do our best. But even doing our best, we often fall short. You do, and I do too as a priest. It's so easy for selfishness to creep in. It's so easy for us to put our own selfish interest ahead of the child. There can be a certain ambitious for a false success. And I know parents, for example, who desperately very much wanted their boy to be a great athlete. Well, that means he's got to go to the public school. He certainly wouldn't be in one of our schools. There's the same ambition. I want my, my boy to be a great lawyer. Well, he could go to one of our schools, but very often a parent will say, no, it's not going to be up to it. Yeah, he's got to go to a public school. There's, Is it really the child's best interest that's being sought there? The parent thinks that it is, but isn't. Vanity. How many times does selfishness take the form of vanity? We'll see, and you see it on the streets all the time, right? Uh, uh, it almost doesn't have to be done by the parent anymore. But you'll see mothers who will dress up their child inappropriately because they they can't dress up that way anymore, but they they can through their child. They can still be cute and draw all the attention and be said, "You're so you're so gorgeous, you're so cute," right? Through the child. Another form of selfishness, pride that would that would refuse to to back a teacher when he's correcting the child. My child would never do that. Another would be, another form of selfishness, a parent who leans on the child. I've seen parents at times where, because, granted, the, the situation is very difficult in the home, where the mother, sometimes the father, but usually it would be the mother, would be leaning on the child, and every all the woes would be sort of poured on this child. Right? The difficulties with the husband, the difficulties with the finances, the difficulties... All poured on the child. Favoritism is another form of selfishness. God doesn't play favorites. He gives graces in different amounts, but he sees something we don't see. And that's a great mystery, but very often it's he sees the child, the soul that he's giving a lot to will respond. Overprotection. There's another form of, it's not selfishness in this case, but it's where the actions of a parent are not for the good of the child. Where there's this anxious effort to protect always from the slightest suffering or difficulty that creates in the child, in fact, a self-focus and an excessive sensitivity. Weakness, sentimentality. Letting the emotions direct action. How many decisions are made by parents because they don't want to make the child unhappy? They don't want the child to cry. They fear losing the love of the child. How many parents will let children do what in their, in their instincts and in their heads they don't want them to do, but they feel like they can't tell them no? Everybody's going on that trip. Everybody's staying overnight at so and so's house. Everybody's going out to that movie. And so they'll let, they'll let the child. Everybody's got a Facebook account. They'll let the child do something that they're instinctively they I don't know. But they won't say no. So you see that and you're good parents. I know that from Father Thiemen. And I know that just from meeting with you very quickly and just talking, right? there's a great spirit and there's a, there's a great genuineness to your desire to be very good parents. So there's a lot there already. And yet, reading some of these things, and not applied exactly in the same way, I use more extreme things just to show the example, right? But we can see that there are cracks in, in the care that we take of the children that are entrusted to us as well. And we can also see that it takes great strength to really love consistently and always. How do we make sure that our children know that we love them? We go back to those quotes that I gave you at the beginning. Some of those cases, I was not convinced that the child was seeing things accurately. A couple of them, I knew that they were, sadly. It's different helping in each case, obviously. But how are we to make sure that a child knows that he's loved when that's so essential? Because he can be loved but not realize it. It's still some of the effects of not being loved reach him. So how can we, when he's superficial and he doesn't see the efforts that you make all the time, he sees some things, but so much he just doesn't see. It was very funny. I was in a, a class, uh, observing a class in one of our schools recently, and the teacher asked the question. I, don't, I think they were studying the fifth commandment. That was the fourth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother, and, of course, you owe gratitude to your parents and so on. And so the teacher said, everybody in the class, tell me one thing that your parents do for this was, I think, third graders. He was amazing. I was just, I was laughing, and so was the teacher. But afterwards, you're like, they just, they don't, they don't see. I. My mom gives me water sometimes. <laughs> I was, I think, the first one, <laughs> and the other ones like. My mom gives me food sometimes. <laughs> and they come up with a few other things, and then it was back to the water again. <laughs> they couldn't come up with anything. They couldn't come up with anything. They're, they're so superficial. They don't see. They, they just don't. They take you for granted. They won't always take you for granted. And they do love you, but they don't, they don't see beyond their little world of themselves. Very often. There's also, of course, for them an immaturity that doesn't see that you're looking for their good when you give a directive or make a decision that's a hard one. They don't understand that. We'll get back to that tomorrow. So how do we make sure that your children know that you love them? Because they have to see that you're really on their side. They have to see that you really want what is best for them, always. I was talking to a young woman who had entered the convent and I knew her, I had worked with her for a number of years, and I asked her how things were going. And she said, Father, the novice mistress is so good. She is such a help. Do you know that it's the first time in my life That I've seen an authority figure as being on my side. Wow. Wow. So how do we make sure our children know that they're loved? First, we show them affection. It's difficult for some of us to show external affection. It's something that needs to be worked on. If we don't show love, it won't be understood that it's there. But be careful, because this is the least important of the things that show that we love. And we don't want to flood the child with external affection, especially if it's not backed by the other things. Because then it's not real. Love must be shown by actions much more than by words and gestures, hugs and kisses and I love you, dear, and so on. Spend time with your children. That's a big one. It's a very big one. You need to be with them as much as you can be with them. And that doesn't mean that you're sitting down on the floor and playing with them. But it means you're there it means that you're there consistently for certain things. Mass, it's a natural, we're Catholics. times, something that used to be absolutely normal. Every year I do camp on the East Coast, the meal becomes <laughs> the thing for the girls. Because we have good cooks, very good cooks, they spoil them a little. It's homemade bread. It's homemade sweet rolls. It's whatever. It's very good. Very good, but not fancy. Just good home cooking. Where everybody sits down at the table together, and we eat together, and we talk, and we laugh. And you know how many times a girl will say, we never do anything like this at home. We never eat like this at home. We never, I never sit down with my family and eat. We just sort of grab something. In Europe, in Catholic Europe, the meal is considered essential to family life. Family life revolves around the meal. Family life is where the father and the mother are with their children, where the mother is in her true role. In some of the countries, in France, for example, the mother officiates at table. The father is in the second place, not because he's second in the family. She serves him first. But because that's her domain. And she watches over everyone at the table. And it's, it's the time when they talk. It's the time when they exchange ideas. It's the time when they laugh and joke. It's the time they're together. It's the time they show they love one another. We don't just grab something and go on. I don't know if it was Father LaRue who said it, but he's big on the topic. Eating is not a selfish thing. Eating is an act of charity. It should never just be about us. These formal times are very important. Then there's informal times. It might be you're working in the kitchen, your mother's. It might be dad, you're working in the garage on the car, and the kids are around, and you're happy that they're around. And the joy and enthusiasm that you have for them being there shows that you love them. You don't say, I love you, please stay at my side. But, you know, you're making a comment at what they're doing, or you're in the kitchen, and she's at the table, and you go over... Nice job, right? She's drawing something, right? There's, there's a natural loving environment there. Right? Individual attention. Not the little child on the pedestal and everything revolves around her, but making sure that everyone gets noticed. Making sure that they don't get noticed only when they need correction. We try that when I teach. I always try to make sure that I call on every child in the class. That I notice every child in the class. It's the same thing in a family. And just being available. When the child wants to talk, it's so easy to say, mom's busy right now, come on, go, get out of the kitchen. And sometimes it's necessary but we never want that to be the pattern. Go back to one of those quotes. Mom never listens. She's not interested. She's too busy for me. So I just don't talk. It's just easier that way. Talk to them. Show interest in what they are interested in. Their games, their schoolwork, their friends, their struggles. St. John Bosco says, especially love the things they love. Because if they see that you love things that they love, if they see love showed in things that they like, they will learn to see love also in things that are not naturally pleasing to them. Listen. To them. Don't obey them. Whoa, we'll get back to that one. That's tomorrow, right? Don't obey them. But listen, this is a fault that we struggle with a lot, certain temperaments, especially something I've always struggled with. right? Somebody starts asking me a question, I already know what they're gonna ask, and I know the answer. And you don't necessarily hear the rest of the question. And sometimes you don't even let them ask it. And that's very frustrating for someone. We do that with kids all the time. It's important to listen to them. Listen to their stories. Listen to their... How it all was shook down on the baseball diamond. Right? Listen to them. And then respond. Because communication is a two-way street. It is going both ways. So that's the first... Thing that's necessary if we're going to show our children that we love them we need to spend time with them talk to them it's not just physical presence obviously it's moral presence it's kindness St. John Bosco says No one cultivates a tender plant with harsh treatment, and much less with violence. Children are very resilient. They're very resilient when it comes to human weakness. Mom gets impatient, dad gets impatient, they bounce back. Kids don't expect their parents to be perfect. They expect them to care. That's where they're not resilient. Kindness shows that they care. Shows that you care. There's the negative side of the coin where we avoid wounding. By harshness of manner. Sharpness of word or undue severity. Right? Scorn. Belittlement. You can never love someone you don't respect. You can never love someone you scorn. To show scorn says to them, don't love me. It's tough when they become teenagers. Sometimes the automatic response is a sarcastic one. Oh, you know everything, don't you? It's not the right one. Publicizing weak points. I changed the story a little bit. But one time I came, I was in a parish, and there was an activity going on, it was an outing of some sort. Right? And the boys were invited. Right? It wasn't just me, it was a few of us priests. We were going to do something. Right? And so one of the servers, right, after mass, right, said, so so, Johnny, you going to come with us?" And his dad was there and he said, "No, he's not. Johnny, tell Father why you're not why you're not allowed to go with him." You've misbehaved, but we were surrounded by people, the other boys, right? You don't publicize the weak points of a child. Comparing unfavorably unfavorably with others. I'm amazed at how much this happens. Why can't you be like so-and-so? Why can't you be like your sister? Your sister never gives me any trouble. You've always been a pain in the neck. I'm amazed at how often that happens. That's the negative side. Avoid wounding. Right. The positive side is to be understanding. Right? It's so important to understand the children, that the souls that are entrusted to us, understand their need, their need for belonging, their need for security, their need for recognition, when they make an effort, right? when they accomplish something, their need for encouragement, their need for, for for sympathy sometimes, understand as well their human weakness. It's amazing. We know ourselves how difficult it is to overcome our faults. We're adults now. We know our faults very well because we've been fighting them for years. And we still tend, and me too, we commit the same faults. And it's not because we're not sincere about overcoming them. It's just not easy. We're adults. We're mature. We understand what really is at stake. We understand profoundly what God has given us. And we still can overcome our faults, or at least we struggle. And that's normal. It's human. But we expect our kids to overcome theirs like that. That's human, too, on our side, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Somebody said at one point, we reserve to ourselves the right to be the only sinner in the world. That's Father Lean. It was Father Edward Lean who said that. A wonderful writer. <coughs> and boy, did he just stick an arrow in there, right? That's, that's a tough one. Right? We also have to look, when we look at kids, it's not just weakness. Right? It's the immaturity, right? The, the, the energy that has them bouncing off the walls... And that doesn't mean we don't do anything about it. Don't get me wrong. That's tomorrow. We're only laying the groundwork, right? <laughs> right? <Don't laughs> we're laying the groundwork. Right? The backdrop is the effort we're going to make is out of love. Right? It's out of love. Right? We have to understand the energy that makes them bounce around. We understand the thoughtlessness that children have. They do things without thinking. One time my, my brother was swinging I don't know exactly how he was doing this, but he was swinging on this like close line pole, and really swinging, which I already think is already pretty insane, right? He's a teenager, thoughtless, and my cousin—or my cousin would be my nephew. My nephew was throwing rocks under him as he swung, right? <laughs> to show his accuracy and to dare him a little bit, <laughs> to make it him more exciting as he swung. It was all very well and good until a rock hit him right in the teeth, (coughs) boom, knocked him right off the the thing and knocked his teeth out, of course. Neither one of them had the smallest amount of ill will, just detachment from reality. (laughs) Thoughtlessness. Kids do thoughtless things all the time. My brother will never again swing on the clothesline pole when rocks are being thrown under him. I hope. <laughs> Especially since he's now 21. <laughs> Thoughtlessness. Take it into account when your kids do things that are wrong. There are things that are done deliberately and there are things that are done thoughtlessly and they're not responded to in the same way. It's a question of understanding. It's a question of understanding. That understanding is the key to patience. Very much the key to patience. Not just understanding of their thoughtlessness and their youthfulness, understanding of their human nature, that they have wounded souls, just like we do. Father Boylan, I think it was, who said, He who understands all forgives all. So patience is going to be very important because we can lose a lot of ground with patience very quickly right? if it communicates that we don't care. Saint Francis de Sales, who was uh, he was by nature fiery temperament. Right? He was known as you know the saint of the honey, you know the teaspoon of honey more than a barrel of vinegar, and that's what he became. He became it by long efforts, right. Yeah. And the effort was, I will not speak when I'm upset. And here's what he said. I am afraid to lose in a quarter of an hour that little sweetness that I have gathered up drop by drop like dew in the vessel of my heart through the efforts of 20 years. It took a lot of work. And so I just won't say anything when I'm upset until I'm in control. kindness and understanding and generosity taking time with the kids is that enough it's not there are two sides to love there's a gentleness and there's a strength if we only have the gentleness it's going to be weak be soft it's not going to be up to the task of forming for a difficult world. We're going to need as well the strength, a firmness, no matter what the cost. Um, Love is a virile thing. It's funny because our world has turned it into not even a feminine thing because there's nothing stronger than feminine love. But it's turned it into an emasculated, unnatural thing that's simply wherever the feelings go. That's not what we want with our kids. If we're really loving them, there's going to be a strength with that love that's willing to pay the price and that will do what is necessary to form the child to prepare him for the world that he's going into. So we're going to, in the next three conferences tomorrow, we're going to look at the strength side. We mustn't lose sight of what we've said tonight. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that it's love behind it all. And it must be love in the sense, I want what's best for my child. I have to prepare him for the world he's going into. I have to prepare him for the task that faces him. And it's not going to be easy for him. I will pay the price no matter what it costs me because I love his soul. I love the soul that's been given me by God, set on the path to God. So we have to hold on to this backdrop, which is really the spirit that has to penetrate everything you do as a parent you care about those souls you'll pay the price for those souls you understand the weakness of those souls you understand the difficulties that they face you understand that they need you to care and to be there I'll close with a quote this is from father Berto he was a famous priest. Um, no, I don't really need to go into it. He was a famous priest in, in, in Europe in the 1940s and 50s. He put this in his bulletin one week. Young mother and young father, here are two great truths which will help you raise your child. The first truth. It is impossible to raise a child well if he is not happy. An unhappy child closes his heart, and then try as you will, you will not be able to get inside. Neither blows nor caresses will open it. The second truth, is this one. A child is not made happy by spoiling him or giving in to his every demand or telling him he is right when in fact he is wrong. A child is happy when he is absolutely certain that he is loved. But he must be loved for his own sake and for the infinite value that he has before God. He must be loved without fail. He must be loved without weakness. He must be loved without caprice. He must be loved with evenness and constancy of action. He must be loved with patience and persistent firmness. That is what it is to love. Begin right away with your children.